I'm Bill Castle, and this is Free Expression. This program is all about conveying the Christian message from a Catholic point of view and defending the liberty which makes it possible to do that. We talk with creative, interesting people about the Church's spotty approach to marriage preparation and guidance from St. Thomas Aquinas on avoiding hell. Join us, sit back, and enjoy some free expression. Thomas Aquinas is one of the towering figures of the Western intellectual tradition. Much of our Catholic theology we owe to this 13th century Dominican priest. Among his many studies, St. Thomas explored the last things, death, judgment, heaven, and hell. He provided extensive and highly detailed guidance on how to prepare for our own inevitable ends. Father Basil Cole, a modern-day Dominican scholar, has synthesized these teachings in a new work, Angelic Virtues and Demonic Vices, Aquinas' Practical Principles for Reaching Heaven and Avoiding Hell, new from Tan Books. Father Basil, thanks for being with us. Sure. Let's start with what is probably the most basic question, and for most people, probably the most urgent. What is hell? Is it a place? Is it a condition? Is it a myth? Well, it can be a myth if you've got a wrong idea. (laughs) Uh, We have to keep in mind that human nature has an inclination towards God. That's the first thing. And secondly, we know only from Revelation that that inclination can be fully realized in extraordinary happiness when we eventually see the infinite God who's all good, all truth, all beauty. If I choose to live a life away from God in this life, and I refuse to to do anything to try to develop this relationship that I kind of have by nature, if not by grace, then all God does is let me have my choice, and that choice is to live without him forever. And we only know from revelation, and not from reason, that that choice away from him leads to excruciating frustration of not having reached what you've been designed for, your ultimate end, to enjoy God and to be with him forever as a friend with friends or a bride with her bridegroom, if you want to use that analogy. And in addition to that, there's a certain fire that kind of holds you in place because your soul can't experience flames, but it can do something. Again, this, this is something that we only we only know that fire exists. We don't know exactly its properties, although we can imagine that our fire is something like it. And then we also know that it can't burn the soul because the soul is spiritual. However, at the end of time, when we get our bodies back, the bodies will exist forever in damnation, and that's when the fire will also hurt. And that is the consequence of running away from absolute truth, goodness, and beauty. You might say it sounds awfully harsh, but on the other hand, in this life, God does everything he can to turn us around towards him. And if we refuse to take his help, then he gives us our choice. 
and the more you know we choose against him, and the more we build our, uh, shall we say, our house in hell of damnation. And there are degrees of damnation, of course. We're always facing the question of grace versus works, that, that God gives us the grace to be saved, but at the same time has expectations of us. Is there a contradiction in that? Is 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 is, 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 is uh, actually when God asks us to do something, as He does in the New Testament, He also gives us aids, helps to be able to do it. It's called in Saint Thomas assisting graces that come with sanctifying grace. The Catholic Church doesn't use that phrase. Uh, they use another one created by a Dominican called actual grace. We're given the options of helps of actual grace on the part of God. And when we receive the sacraments and as we grow in prayer, more and more those assisting graces, a la St. Thomas, or actual graces, the Church uses the phrase, they intensify and they increase. And they make, they make the difficulties of the spiritual life uh, doable. And then, of course, if we face heroic problems, then the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit become actualized if we're really trying to seek God. If we're not trying to see God, well, then those gifts aren't going to be actualized. And of course, if we try not to seek God or live a mediocre life, then the actual graces won't be intensified as much either. You go into some detail in exploring St. Thomas's views on the, the many, many kinds of vices and virtues there are. I know it would be impossible to, to really capsulize everything, but can you give us kind of an overview of, of what I'll he is proposing? Try. Well, first of all, looking at the positive side, God has created the infusion of three really great virtues, faith, hope, and divine love. They're supernatural gifts. Then he's also given us weak Thomas maintain, and the Catechism hints at it. He also gives us, when we're in the state of grace, infused moral virtues. And those infused moral virtues are prudence, uh, justice, uh, courage, and temperance. And each of those general virtues have what we call certain uh, other kinds of virtues that are like temperance, that are like prudence, or they go along with prudence. So there's a huge number of them. In addition to that, we have to fight against certain vices. And the Council of Trent teaches there are seven. St. Thomas Aquinas doesn't dispute that, but he does put pride as an overarching vice called the queen. And under the queen are seven vices. We call those the desire for praise and adulation or vainglory, seeking glory vainly. And the, the Catechism of the Council of Trent just puts pride, in, and it doesn't talk about vainglory, but it, does, it means it. It kind of conflates the two. Then comes avarice, which is the root of vices, the excessive desire of material things. Then comes envy, which is the sadness over somebody's abilities that you don't have, or, or delight when somebody fails and filling those, those duties. And then comes the vice of anger, that's not righteous, it's not reasonable, that leads to a lot of problems, although there's virtuous anger. 
Well, then comes the vices of lust and um, excessive eating, which is specifically fleshy to, you know, desiring food and drink and, and for that matter, drugs out of sync with reason. And then sexuality, desiring sex without due cause, due reason, etc. Usually we speak of, in, in marriage, conjugal acts that aren't lustful acts, they're virtuous acts. And then finally, there's the kind of conclusion of a lot of these vices called achidia, a certain sadness about divine things, a certain repulsion against the divine things. And each of these capital vices, uh, have, each of them has daughters of vices, usually six or seven. There's about a total of 43. So you can see that the ascetical life, the life of the Christian, is a kind of, is a kind of a battle trying to organize one's life of virtue and avoid by uh, avoiding the vices and her daughters, but by exercising a greater faith, hope, and charity, and prayer, and religion, and depending upon God to be able to help us rise above the pull away from God by the flesh, the world. The devil. He certainly hangs a lot on pride. That's very much a focus of, of his yes, thinking. The queen, the queen. Yes. And it's personal, you know, and then the property of, for Thomas, the property of, of pride is this excessive desire for praise, vain glory. The more you boast about yourself, then you want others to boast with you and for you. And you want to be praised and honored because you have such a high opinion of yourself. Well, now, pride has always been a question that I've wrestled with. I'm a writer. I've been involved in music and other kinds of creative endeavors. And certainly pride is highlighted in the arts and the creative fields. But it has often seemed to me that a certain amount of pride or a certain amount of ego, if you will, is essential to being able to do things like that. I mean, first of all, you have to believe that you have something to say. Right. Well, we have to distinguish as usual. <laughs> There's reasonable pride, yeah, but quite often it goes overboard. Uh, just as like there's reasonable eating, but we have a tendency to go overboard. See? The reasonable pride would be accepting the gifts and the talents that you have from God, and you know that they're not infinite, that you know that they're finite, and that God has given you certain gifts and graces, and you thank God that he's given you these things. You don't exaggerate them. You don't pump them up in your own psyche. You, you accept the fact that they exist and that they're limited and do the best you can. How do you apply these principles in a practical way in everyday life? How do you check yourself when you run into excesses? Uh, what does St. Thomas give us in the way of, of a practical well, approach? Thomas will teach us that if you try to live a more prayerful life, receive the sacraments, you know, often, you know, not every day necessarily, you're not obliged, but you try to pray daily, you try to go to confession, you know, frequently, or go to Mass on Sunday, and maybe you try to be more concerned about your neighbor than you are, and certainly concerned about raising the family, organizing it according to reason and faith, etc., etc. Well, the more you try to please God, or the more graces you receive to be be able to grow in virtue and grace. And the less you do it, the less grace you receive. 
it's easy. The more the more mercy you show others, the more mercy you receive from God on the life of, uh, say, uh, the corporal spiritual works of mercy. And so the more you want to keep God in your life, well, the more he takes care of you quite often. You know, sometimes he can surprise us, even if we don't take good care of ourselves. He can give us a whack now and then <laughs> and start a journey. I remember one time a priest telling us in class that he was an alcoholic for 10 years, lived with a girl for 10 years. She died. He went into depression. He just simply said to God, if you exist, help me. And so he winds up in AA. He winds up getting a decent job. And then he also winds up getting a calling to be a priest. God can surprise us all by giving us occasional whacks of grace. People who have children face the challenge of conveying values to them, helping them to grow up into reasonably balanced adults. How can they apply these principles in teaching their kids? Oh, sure. I I can think of my own family. I was an only kid, born and raised in San Francisco City by the Golden Gate. And mom was a Catholic, dad was a zero. Before I was into kindergarten, my mom taught me my act of contrition, my Our Father, my Hail Mary, my Confidier, and the acts of faith, open charity. And then when I was in the third grade to the eighth grade, she would take me to confession once a month or once every five weeks or six weeks, you know? She wasn't giving me conferences all the time. My dad didn't know anything about the faith, etc. Of course, I went then to Catholic schools and was taught my catechism. But I'm just saying, Mom did a great job in making sure I learned my prayers as a kitty and then bringing me to confession, which gave me a love for confession. Were my priests uh, superstars like Thomas Aquinas? No, but they were helpful. Is that the start of your interest in St. Thomas? Oh, no. (laughs) No, not at all. I didn't get interested in St. Thomas until I was ordained a priest. Even in the Dominican order, I couldn't stand to read him. It was awful, 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 (laughs) awful. Something came later on in life. I eventually had to teach him whether I liked it or not. Then I got graces to understand a lot of things. I used to read other spiritual authors. I always read the stuff of John Paul, of Paul VI. And, and, but, but Thomas was, uh, was kind of hard to read because it's so dry, so, so dry. Well, the way he structures his sentences, too, he sometimes has a kind of a roundabout way of getting to the point. I know, I know, I know. And some parts of Aquinas really require a lot of education, and some parts anybody can understand. Christianity certainly has offered us a a wide variety of great thinkers and intellectuals. Oh, yes. Oh, gosh, yes. Why is St. Thomas particularly relevant today? What makes him special? Well, let's go back to the teaching of the Church. They say he's the common doctor of the Church. He synthesized so many of the fathers of the Church and sacred scripture and sacred tradition. He's not infallible. He doesn't say everything that's true. It makes makes a few blunders now and again. But there's something, a core, that resonates if you can even read portions of his stuff. It used to be said by many that reading six months of Aquinas is like reading three years of anybody else. <laughs> Somehow, if you get to understand him, a lot of his ideas stick 
once you understand what Aquinas teaches, you remember it and it sticks with you. The book is Angelic Virtues and Demonic Vices, Aquinas' Practical Principles for Reaching Heaven and Avoiding Hell by Father Basil Cole. I assume the book has been released now and is available through the usual channels. Can you get it uh, on Amazon and all the rest? Oh, sure. Very easy. Yeah, yeah. Well, hey, thank you, Father, for being with us. It's an interesting book. I haven't read the whole thing yet, but what I have read, oh, I've yeah. found, uh, found like quite it. Yeah. I think you'll like it. God bless until we meet again. There's no doubt that marriage is under stress these days, where once it was assumed that the family was society's bedrock, family being defined as father, mother, and kids, the number of marriages has fallen, and when they do marry, people are tending to wed later in life. Certainly, pop culture goes out of its way to glamorize the single life and the many life options available to those who don't tie themselves down. But it may be that the most insidious assault on marriage could be coming from, of all places, the church. At least that's what author and educator John Clark suspects. He has a new book, Betrayed Without a Kiss, Defending Marriage After Years of Failed Leadership in the Church. It's from Tan Books, and it argues that Catholic leaders have failed to give this most fundamental sacrament the attention and care it deserves. John Clark, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. That's a pretty startling proposition. How has the Church gone wrong with marriage? Well, probably the easiest way to understand it is simply by looking at the number of annulments. So in the year 1968, there were about 350 annulments in America. That's every diocese in America combined, 350 annulments. Then 20 years later, 1989, the number of annulments was over 70,000. So going from 350 to 70,000 in one generation... I would say that's pretty alarming, and that number should get us thinking about what is actually going on behind the scenes. What is the church doing? We've long had marriage preparation classes, what do they call it, pre-cana sessions, and counseling from priests. Uh, what's not happening that was happening years ago or, or that should be happening? I think that there's certainly some issues with pre-cana in many of the dioceses. Pre-Cana tends to be kind of a mixed bag. In some dioceses, it can be very good. In some dioceses, it's not very good at all. But I think the part of the problem is, the, the fundamental problem, I think, with much of this is, is that we hear very little about the sacrament of matrimony from the pulpit. Hmm. I mean, I'm 52 years old. I go to Mass every Sunday, try to go to daily Mass. And I feel like I could count on, on both hands how many times I've heard about marriage. This should be marriage the sacrament of matrimony should be spoken about from the pulpit all the time. It should be a regular theme. And for whatever reason, we've largely failed in that. Whatever the, the sermons don't tend to focus on matrimony, but children need to hear about matrimony. Teenagers need to hear about matrimony. The church could do pre-cana in some respect by simply giving sermons about what marriage is. 
But what is the primary purpose of matrimony? Here's another topic. What to look for in a spouse? What virtues to look for in a spouse? And what virtues we should have to make good spouses? And I think there is a fundamental failure that the church has not talked about that. One of the frequently heard points made in favor of letting priests marry is that their being unmarried kind of detaches them from the realities of ordinary life. Does that have any substance? No. And I say this as someone who is Eastern Catholic, which does have married priests. So even from my perspective, I would say, I would look at it this way. So when I went back to do research for this book, I noticed something uh, very interesting. When you have times of booms in holy orders, you also have times of booms in matrimony. The sacraments of holy orders and matrimony are very symbiotic in nature. And so they, they tend to rise and fall together. That's something to really focus on is that, is that the, 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 the two vocational sacraments very simply, are meant to support each other. And so I don't think that to support marriage you need to have a married priesthood. Historically, quite the contrary is true. Then is this merely a crisis within the Church, or does it reflect a larger societal change, breakdown, call it what you will? There are both. In my book, I have an entire chapter dedicated to the problems in society, You know, I go over specifically, I probably could have mentioned a dozen, but I concentrated on the prevalence of pornography, the influence of radical feminism, and the rejection of fatherhood. Those three things are key to this because radical feminism is telling women not to be moms and wives. The rejection of fatherhood is is pretty simple. It's saying that, you know, fathers aren't really needed. Men aren't needed in terms of raising children. Men have heard that a lot for the last few decades. And then the problems of pornography are pretty obvious. We do have societal influences, but the church's church's function in in large measure is obviously to teach the, the faith whole and entire. It's to rise above that to correct society and to correct society and to explain to the laity how society has gone wrong. Similarly to, you know, if you look at Humani Vitae and Tasti Tanubi, these are encyclicals that are essentially saying, look, society went wrong, but here is what is actually true. It's the church's job in large measure to correct the errors and ills of society, and the laity need to hear about that. It's kind of tough, I think, for priests to address certain topics. I know whenever the famous passage from St. Paul uh, appears in the liturgy, you know, the one about wives, uh, be submissive to your husbands, you get a lot of uh, giggling and uh, elbows to the ribs uh, from from wives to husbands. People aren't really in tune with a lot of this message anymore. And I say that from the perspective of a guy who's about to celebrate his 54th wedding anniversary. <laughs> so <laughs> how do you get it across when people just, I don't know, somehow they aren't comfortable hearing about these issues? So first of all, congratulations on your 54 years. That's beautiful. Thank um, you. I would say, you know, you ask a really interesting question about that passage in St. Paul. 
There's an excellent book, and I actually reviewed this book in the National Catholic Register, I think it was earlier this year. It's a book called The Obedience Paradox, Finding True Freedom in Marriage, written by Mary Stanford. He actually goes over this, in. it takes an entire book to actually illustrate this. It's worth reading this book cover to cover, because I thought it was really fascinating. But it shows the beauty of this teaching. But I would simply say, in a broader answer to your question, when we start bracketing out parts of Scripture, that's not the fault of Scripture. That's our fault. <laughs> and so Jesus has the, you know, Jesus has their teachings in, in, obviously, in Scripture, that all generations are meant to hear. These are meant for us today as much as they're meant for any time and place. And so we need to try to understand what it is that God is teaching us and accept it and live by it. Well, where do we go from here? What would be your advice to pastors uh, in trying to bring about more attention to this problem and maybe find a, a way out of the wilderness? Well, first of all, I, it's a great question. I think that from the pastor's perspective, one of the key things is is that they need to get more involved with the Catholic couples themselves. Obviously, the number of marriages is way down. It should be that the priests have time to spend with these couples. And I mean that on an individual basis. I don't mean let's all get together, you know, 35 couples on a Saturday and, you know, and, and get a certificate that says you've passed this class. I'm talking about meeting with the couples individually, you know, hearing their confessions, having open conversations with them, and beyond that, remaining in their lives. You and I can remember a time when it was fairly common that priests would come to people's homes to bless them, and that's a great tradition. I'm sorry we've lost it, because that is the domestic church, right. and I think that I think that by the priest, you know, keeping in contact with the couple, helping them nourish their faith, that's key to the process. Beyond that, I think that priests should be speaking about the beauty and joy, and for that matter, sacrificial nature of marriage from the pulpit. We just don't hear enough about it. So I think what priests should do is go back and read read books about marriage, read the classics, read about the sacramentality of marriage. Because I think in large measure, what's happened is, is the church seems to have forgotten, at least many in the church seem to have forgotten, that matrimony is a sacrament. And we need to treat it that way again. And, and to know that if we lose on marriage, we lose. End of sentence, end of paragraph. We need to do what we can to support marriage. But the key thing is the priests need to be a championing marriage. The priests need to be, for lack of a better term, cheerleaders for marriage. And we need to just hear more of that from the pulpit. The book is Betrayed Without a Kiss, Defending Marriage After Years of Failed Leadership in the Church by John Clark. I assume that this book is available through the normal channels. Yes. The book is released on October 31st, and uh, you can, uh, can go through tanbooks.com, and then, as you say, that the, the other channels, it's, it's pretty widely available through the various booksellers on the Internet and Catholic bookstores as well. Well, this is a pretty basic issue. Uh, somebody's got to take it seriously and perhaps bring about some adjustment in the way that clergy approach the subject of marriage. Um, your book is a first step. Uh, let's hope that people read it and take it to heart. 
well, I hope that it's true. That is why I wrote it. And there's certainly some many good ideas and practical ideas in there for couples to use and take advantage of as well. And, you know, how to live sacramental lives, how to live lives of forgiveness, because we need to forgive ourselves and forgive each other. And we just need to live lives of forgiveness and reconciliation and, you know, love one another. It really is basic. That's a great way to say it. John Clark, thanks for being with us. Thank you. God bless you. Be with us next time when we explore other aspects of religious communication and look deeper into the great Christian heritage of free expression. Free Expression with Bill Castle is a production of Good Shepherd Catholic Radio and Company Publications, where good books, good music, and good radio are always good company. Dan Curris provided technical assistance. Theme and incidental music are by Dan Adam. The program was produced and directed by Bill Castle. This is Good Shepherd Catholic Radio.